Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Friday. I, I, I'm, I'm tempted to say, so we, we made it through another week, but there's six more to go or something like that. And as I wrote in my newsletter this morning, we seem to have hit the throw all the spaghetti against the wall phase of the campaign. You have the president promising $200 vouchers for senior citizens with completely imaginary money. Uh, there's a lot more uh, Russiagate fan fiction. The DOJ is le- leaking things. Uh, we have a looming Supreme Court uh, pick over the weekend. And panicky Lindsey Graham, who's going on Fox News, pleading with viewers that I'm being killed. Uh, also, lots more polls, depending on which ones you want to look at. Um, I think the ones giving the White House the most heartburn are the uh, Fox News polls showing Biden leading in Nevada, uh, Pennsylvania and Ohio. Nobody thought Ohio was going to be in play. But, um, you know, if you want somebody to really be worried about, uh, there are some numbers that are a little troubling uh, out of Florida where the Democrats seem to be doing. I mean, so the Republicans seem to be doing very, very well on voter registration uh, and uh, doing a little bit better in, in Iowa. And the headline in today's Washington Post, though, captures the moment that we are in. Trump's escalating attacks on election prompt fears of a constitutional crisis. Joining me to sort through all of this is our colleague, Bill Crystal. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Charlie. Yeah, you know, it wasn't a, I was thinking about as you spoke, what, what this week was. I feel like it was, a, it was, it really brought home the degree to which Trump is trying to make us into a banana republic. I mean, you put yeah. together the things that you mentioned, which normally are treated separately, and I normally think of them separately. Yeah. $200, like check in the mail. That's such a classic you know, but which isn't real money. I mean, promise of it. It's not clear there's any money to do it. But anyway, just bribing the voters. It's kind of Eva Peron. Let's like it's an election. Let's just hand out money. Right. The corruption of <laughs> yes, absolutely. Then the corruption of the Justice Department, which we saw in that little case in Pennsylvania where they announced something mid investigation that was turned out to be trivial anyway, but make it seem like there's vo- huge voter fraud, I guess, in the military mail in ballots. It's not even clear. They, I'm not sure we know what what ballots they were, but that those presumably be what they're talking about. Nine of them. And, and then we appoint, uh, let's see, as the IG, the inspector general of the intelligence community, a political, that's a job where you're supposed to have a real nonpartisan civil servant to, you know, ensure that ethics are followed and so forth. And you, they appoint uh, uh, as acting, I guess, Devin Nunes's former aide, oh, a total political yeah. hack. And then the election, then the assault on the elections. I mean, all, really, that is kind of what it means if he could carry through on all of those, if there were no institutional restraints and no pushback. That's that is really I mean, it's not something we're used to in America. And it is something they're used to in lots of other parts of the world. Yeah, you know, it is banana republic style politics here. So so you wrote a piece yesterday uh, channeling your inner uh, Vladimir Lenin. I'm just saying that I'm saying that because the headline is what is to be done. Um, And of course, I'm I'm guessing that there'll be some trolls over at the Washington Examiner who says that Bill Kristol fantasizing about a Russian revolution that would result in the murder of the czar or something like that. Well, now that you've ventured it, of course, there will be. So thanks. Thanks, Charlie. I really appreciate that. Well, okay. so I made a I made a reference to um, the last speech by Nikolai Ceausescu. Uh, which, which I still think is one of the great moments uh, from, from you know, of, of modern political history. And I, I wasn't referring to the assassination, but the moment was this absolute dictator who comes out, you know, on the, you know, comes out on the balcony to speak to his adoring people who have been held in thrall by, by him. And he's giving the usual blah, 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 communist leader speech. And then suddenly the crowd turns on him. And it's being broadcast live. And the look on his face at that moment when he realizes what's happening 
that you know the, the regime was ending and you know that he lived within a bubble in a bubble that he'd surrounded himself with sycophants and yes people and 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 made sure that the that he had nothing but adoring uh, crowds and suddenly you had this this reality check where his people just weren't having it anymore and it's really one of those, all those great moments and i just was thinking about it yesterday and so but it, but apparently that triggered the trolls that i was fantasizing about the assassination of donald trump and i actually no i was thinking about the that moment at which people within a bubble suddenly are confronted with the reality of what the public really thinks of them yeah i think that and i wonder how much that did jar trump the being at the supreme court yesterday and uh and then being hearing the shouts, uh, what was it? Vote him out, I think it was, which of course is an appropriate uh, chant. I mean, if you're going to chant, as opposed to lock him up or something like that, it, it shows faith in the elections, which of course Trump doesn't have. Yeah, it's great that Trump's uh, supporters are now in effect uh, defending Ceausescu or they're anti-anti-Ceausescu. I guess that's the way to I guess it, that's right? true. So <laughs> what, what is to be done? And you, you, you wrote this yesterday in, in, in the bulwark. And I, and I think this is the, the sort of where we're at that, that moment of once again, at that moment where, you know, of, of choosing, but to feel like we've been here so many times before, but the election is now approaching 39 days away from the time we were taping this. The president is spreading disinformation about the vote. He's trying to suppress some votes. He's exploring ways to disrupt or distort the counting of the votes. And he is refusing to commit to a peaceful transfer of power if he nonetheless loses the vote. Wow. So, Bill Crystal, what what is to be done? What what are we going to do about this? What should well, we, do? we all have to do? You know, different things. That's I guess a point I sort of make. Uh, that um, and it's none of it's easy. So a, of course, we need to be alarmed. I mean, the citizenry as a whole needs to be vigilant and alarmed and call out things and and be skeptical of reports like that Justice Department thing about the seven ballots in Pennsylvania yesterday. And 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 me, the media need to be skeptical and. And and so that's sort of the more general alarm, and I and there I'm 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 sort of arguing against the uh, what I think you called somewhere the too cool for school mm -hmm. uh, attitude of some journalists and a lot of commentators, a lot of conservatives, of course, who don't want to face up to reality. Uh, you know, Trump says these things, but nothing really is going to happen. So what do we don't we should? It's kind of you know vulgar almost to be alarmist about this and to talk as if there's a real chance that an election could be process could be corrupted or an election could be stolen. So I think that we need to fight back. You know what? If we're too alarmed and everything goes smoothly, fine. There is zero price to be paid. A little bit of price of uh, people being uh, uh, getting ulcers, I suppose, but otherwise no price at all. So, I mean, we should be alarmed, A. B, um, more former officials, in my opinion, and you know, big shots who are not in the Trump administration need to speak out. I think that would have some effect. Uh, would have effect on people in the Trump administration, which I'll, whom I'll come back to in a minute, and on the general sense out there that you know we need to mobilize sort of everyone who has some standing to ensure that we have a free and fair election in which voters are allowed to vote, in which votes are counted appropriately, in which there's not an incitement to go to the streets and have some kind of mob violence or mob rule, uh, in which the courts don't intervene inappropriately, though obviously there's legitimate ways in which cases can go to the courts. And so forth. And so that's my appeal to the people who served in the Trump administration and are now out, the, the Mattises and the Kellys, uh, and to people like former President Bush and others that this, if, you know, if ever there's a moment to step forward, just guaranteeing uh, or trying to guarantee 
a legitimate, free and fair election that's not corrupted is a pretty good reason to intervene. It's a better reason than just supporting one candidate or another. It's a better reason than you don't like this policy or that policy. It's a better reason than this tweet was vulgar. So that's, I think, important. And um, we'll see if they do, if any of these people steps up. uh, Well, if uh, not now, when, right? Yeah. I mean, junior people like Olivia, our friend Olivia Troy and others have stepped up at considerable risk to themselves and with, you know, difficult thing to do. Uh, People who are at the end of their careers and have great standing and uh, I, I think they could do more. And then the final point, and I think this is the one that I think has been most controversial, if I can judge from just a quick look at uh, responses on social media, is people in the administration who are decent people, who are career people or political people and are trying to do the right thing. Olivia describes a lot of those people, for example, on the, on the coronavirus task force as really, you know, they care about public health and they're trying to keep the FDA or the CDC, you know, reputable organizations and and get the vaccines done and not get let bad information come out and so forth. Those people need to be ready to to act. And, and I don't by act, I don't mean a coup, but I mean, publicize illegal orders, publicize orders to lie about things, um, uh, talk to each other about what they wouldn't, what orders they wouldn't, wouldn't obey in the case of maybe people in the Defense Department and people in the Justice Department. I think this is a moment where sort of the entire upper and middle echelons of, of the federal government need to just remember that their oath is to the Constitution and to the laws, not to the one individual uh, in the Oval Office. Obviously, they shouldn't take matters into their own hands or anything like that, but they minimally should be ready, I think. They should think ahead of time about you know, what they would uh, publicize if, if there's an illegal attempt to do something illegal and so forth. Because I do think we depend still on some people in the executive branch, in the Justice Department, in the Defense Department, in the Homeland Security Department, to to in the coronavirus task force, for that matter, if Trump announces a fake vaccine success, you know, on October 30th, to come forward and say, no, that's not the case. And, and here's the proof. So that's that's my little argument. I mean, I hope uh, some right. of that I think some good, but I mean, look, it's bad. It's people are just not alarmed enough. I mean, it's bad to have a pre- it's one thing to have people on the outside agitating. It's bad to have a president of the United States so willing to lie and to use the parts of the federal government that he can bend to his will, that increasingly, unfortunately, he's been able to bend to his will to advance solely his reelection and, and not to follow uh, normal procedures and the rule of law. So we get this, we do get this, what you described as the sort of the pseudo sophisticated reassurance, it's just talk, don't worry about it, or he won't really try anything. He's too incompetent to pull off a coup. Uh, The system would hold if he did try. I think one of the things that we have, we really have learned, though, is, is how weak many of these norms are, how uh, easily destroyed they are, how unwilling some of the remaining guardrails are, you know, people who are supposed to be guardrails are to to invoke it. So I keep asking the questions, would he dare to do this? And if he did, who would stand up against him? So it is, it's one thing to listen to senators sort of rhetorically push back, but would they actually do anything? And I think we, you know, we have reason to be troubled about all of this, but also the damage that he is doing to the body politic by raising the doubts about the legitimacy, you know, the the potential for chaos, even violence um, and alienation that, that he's that he's 
you know, that he's that he's stoking by these comments among 40 percent of the population. This is not irrelevant. It's not irrelevant that the president of the United States has become this this vector of chaos and disinformation, because I mean, we're going to pay a huge price for all of that. So, I mean, I that's why I do think that we ought to be alarmed about it, because we've seen what he's capable of doing. You know that he's constantly testing the limits. For a while, there were people who said, you can't do that, you can't do that. But, you know, increasingly, if you watch the president, he's doing what he wants to do, and he thinks he can do anything. No, I think you're right about the corrupting effect on on the public, on parts of the public, obviously, it normalizes all of this. And uh, means that the next president, if Biden wins, he'll be faced with much greater degree of chaos and you know people claiming he stole the election. Even if he wins by seven or ten points, uh, then a normal, you know, normally disgruntled losers, you know, just are disgruntled, and then they decide, okay, let's organize and try to see what we can do to uh, stop the parts of the president's agenda we don't like and so forth. But we're, we could be way beyond that, and that's that's worrisome. The damage that's been done to the Republican Party, which we've discussed before, obviously, and our colleague Jonathan Last is is very strong on this has been very great. And, you know, it's funny, I, I was talking with someone who's been in touch with some, the very most senior, you know, ex-Republican officials, let's just put it that way, and um, both in this administration and, and prior ones. And one of, uh, this person was telling me, well, so-and-so doesn't want to get involved because he thinks he can play an important role in sort of brokering agreements and bringing people back together in the, mm-hmm. on the Republican side. Uh, after January 20th. Good luck with that. Yeah, good luck with that. I mean, A, <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. B, if you stay out now, I mean, no one cares what some senior person, I mean, if he stays out now and Trump just loses and, you know, Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton and Nikki Haley and everyone are jostling around and senators and congressmen. And I mean, no one's going to care that some senior Bush guy comes, shows up and says, well, I'm now here ready to help you people get your act back together. They're so far beyond that. And I would also say, if you didn't speak up against Trump, what credibility do you have to the broader public in being a person who's going to do anything? You just sat out the biggest, most consequential election of our lifetime, and now you're showing up to sort of help help save things. I, I, I'm very dubious about that. So, but it's a rationale. They're all using different rationales for for not stepping up. And um, I guess it's sometimes it's sincere, sometimes honestly, it's not. But uh, I just hope if, if some of them are listening or if they're close allies and aides are listening, I mean, former President Bush, whom I really mm-hmm. respect and like, I was a McCain person originally, and, and but still, I, I think he, you know, he conducted himself very well as president. And I actually agree with a lot of his policies, but even if one wants to disagree, he, 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 he held the office with dignity and honor. I mean, what are we waiting for? Here, what is he going to do afterwards? And what is the what rule? I mean, this is minor norm that ex presidents don't get too involved in elections. I mean, it President seems Obama like an obsolete norm as well. As he could, yeah. Why shouldn't he be? Incidentally, mm-hmm. so that's a very minor, I would say, polite norm of politeness compared to the norms that are being destroyed all around us and norms that the president has spoken so eloquently about, both at home and incidentally abroad in terms of the freedom agenda. And now he's just going to sort of uh, sit there and, well, it's, you know, be awkward to get involved and he doesn't agree with Biden on some things. He doesn't have to even endorse Biden, but simply to say that the things Trump has been saying about the elections are totally unacceptable and that no president should say that. And I think you should go further and say that four more years of Trump would genuinely be a danger 
to the country. But I, I, I don't, and you know, his his top political aide, Karl Rove, is in there helping the Trump campaign. Are people well, too you know, you know, that, to that, that Bush is okay with that and he's for Trump? I think he really owes the country a clarification. And I hope people who are listening to this podcast who are close to Bush uh, send him this podcast and yeah, maybe it'll, he'll be annoyed. He's, he's a thin-skinned guy and he never likes criticism, but maybe it'll jostle him a little. Well, it, it it should because you know I was listening, you know, thinking about the the difference of people who are you know in the middle of their careers and have to worry about their viability within conservative Inc. or you know on K Street, uh, or or in, or in Congress, as opposed to people who now really ought to be thinking about their historical legacy and what they stood for and what they could do. Um, George W. Bush is a, is at the end of his career, right? He you know, frankly, has nothing really to lose in terms of this practical, uh, you know, the practical political effect. Uh, he ought to be concerned about the verdict of history. He ought to be concerned about, you know, what stand did you take at a time when, you know, you believed that we were at a crossroads. And see, this is the thing. You, you know that the McCains and the Bushes understand what the stakes are. They understand how important this is. And so the decision to to sit it out you know, might be defensible on prudential grounds for younger people. And we'll leave that aside because some people have done some very, very courageous things. But but why not speak out at this particular point? Um, because I do think this is going to be one of those, uh, you know, where where were you during the war, grandpa type uh, type moments? You know, there's another calculation. I don't know whether you've, you you would agree with this, but you know, as we get closer to the election, sort of the opposite calculation is taking place among some of the what we've described or I've described as the anti-anti-Trumpers, um, people who have been never Trump or critics of Trump, who seem to be ratcheting up their attacks on Trump critics. And, you know, in the back of my mind, and, and I know that this is, you know, this annoys some people talking about motivation. It does seem as we get closer to the prospect of Trump's defeat, that there's an effort to make sure that they have quote unquote clean hands in the Republican Party. You know what I mean by that? It's that, yeah. okay, we're about to go into the post Trump era. I don't want to be tainted by being associated with um, Trump's defeat. I, I want to be able to say, okay, you know, I was still there with you folks. Uh, don't blame me for stabbing Donald Trump in the back. I'm not one of those Republicans for Biden or never Trumpers. And so there does seem to be. A, a movement to burnish your conservative credentials so that you will be able to be a player in the rubble of post-Trump uh, right-wing politics. No, I think that actually is one of the key reasons that as people have said to me, well, why are these people saying these things when Trump's very likely to lose and therefore aren't they better off sounding more like you, Bill, or Charlie or someone, you know, being on the winning side, so to speak. But that's not, of course, the way they think, because if they correctly think they wouldn't have much to gain from, you know, being for Biden. We don't think we're going to gain much from being uh, for Biden. Uh, there's going to be a huge stab in the back narrative among the Trump people, which will be the stabbers, I suppose. And, but they, under, but what those people are thinking is, look, there'll be a big Republican party. Maybe it'll be 47 senators. Maybe it'll be 195 house members. It's not like it's nothing though, 25 governors or so. And I want to be a player in that. And to be a player in that, I don't have to be maybe a super Trump loyalist. I can be someone who had doubts and who criticized and kept the distance. But what these people are thinking is I have to be someone at the end of the day who didn't, well, minimally didn't say I was for Biden. And maybe more broadly even said I would I voted for Trump. So I stayed on the team. And that's sort of Nixon Goldwater, I'd say is the way they think of it. Goldwater in 64 ran. There were 
governors like Bill Scranton and Nelson Rockefeller in the Northeast who just refused to support him. Nixon quietly supported him, didn't do anything, made clear, you know, on background to reporters that that wasn't his view of, you know, what the Republican Party should be, that Goldwater would lose badly. He did. And Nixon came back and won the nomination, obviously, four years later, acceptable to the Goldwater forces, but but also, you know, not like gold, didn't look to anyone like Goldwater. So that's kind of their dream. Now that's, oh, I mean, it's not a profound courage, but that's an understandable political calculation. If you're talking about a challenger who's going to lose by 20 points, so who cares, frankly, whether you support, you know, Goldwater or come, come out against Goldwater, didn't Nixon coming out against would have increased Johnson's margin from, you know, 21.2 to 21.3 maybe or something. This is the incumbent president who really threatens our system and therefore, this kind of calculation, in my view, is totally inappropriate. I think it's also stupid. I mean, the truth is no one's looking to when, when, when Cotton and Hawley and Nikki Haley and everyone get together and DeSantis, they're not looking to these. They, maybe they'll look to these people to get a little cover, a little respectability. They're not going to take these people seriously either. So I don't even think it's a very wise calculation, but it is not a courageous one. And I think it's really irresponsible. But anyway, maybe some of them authentically are so concerned about Biden being a radical. They, they're they so worried about one or two Supreme Court appointments or whatever. Um, I mean, it, it's funny. The court thing gives them a chance. I myself agree with David French and Adam White that it should be put off. It's bad for the country. But if they want to take a different position that, you know what, this, he's the president, he gets to nominate, the Senate gets to confirm, they could support the Trump, Supreme, assuming the nominee is respectable, mm-hmm. nominee, and then still say, but okay, we've gotten some good, gotten some good things from Trump, but you can't reelect him for four years. But they won't even say that. And, and what does that tell us about them? Well, you're you're, you're right, and and I think a lot of them will lean on on these court decisions as a you know ret- retrospective justification for what they've done. Say, okay, right. I had to put up with a lot, but look, we had three conservative Supreme Court justices, and this will be the story they tell themselves. I mean, they need to tell themselves something about all of this. And so, you know, in, in, in retrospect, it will be, yes, there were a lot of bad things that Trump did, but look at this huge victory. So, you know, your, your piece yesterday, what, what is to be done as sounding the alarm about, look at the banana re- Republic. And by the way, sort of in the back of my mind, it's like, you know, are, is anybody really surprised about all of this? Let me just digress from, I think maybe Sarah Longwell wrote this piece once, but, you know, given the fact that, you know, Donald Trump has been a serial con man and a liar, you know, fraudster all of his life. Are we really shocked that he's playing games with the vaccine? Are we really shocked that he is sowing chaos about the election, that he's willing to lie about the the, the results, that he's willing to treat this as, uh, you know, as, as well, treat it the way that, that, he's, that he's treating it? I mean, this is who he is. There's nothing I- surprising about this. You know, you know, you're and, right. And even the Wall Street Journal editorial board saying, you know what, this is bad because you may be feeding Democratic panic and you may be adding to the impression that people might actually be listening to you and thinking you are not fit for office. Like, wait, no, he's telling us who he is. <laughs> totally. You know, it's interesting. I, I hadn't you maybe think about this in a slightly I'll give you a formulation I hadn't thought of before, but prompted by your comments, which I think are good. Um I mean, look, we have Republican voters against Trump. A lot of people voted for Trump in 2016. They were more credulous, you might say, than, than maybe you and I were, frankly. They, 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 don't, they thought he was a good businessman or he would shake things up or the price wouldn't be too high. Or they thought, and this wasn't crazy, I would say, 
you know what? He's kind of a con man and a blowhard, but he'll grow in office. Everyone does. You get there and you look at the Oval Office and you look at the Resolute Desk and you change some. And I didn't think that was a totally crazy thing to hope for during the transition. It went away pretty fast. But the people who were for Trump in 2016 and are not for him today, I think those people are defense. I mean, I, I have no problem with them. And I, I think they've, they've made the, uh, an intelligent and courageous decision that they were wrong and that they just didn't, you know, they had, they, they made a bet that it didn't work out, but now they're at least coming to grips with the consequences of what they did. The going the opposite way, which is what some of these anti-anti-Trumpers are doing, which is to say they didn't support him in 2016. They voted for Evan McMullen or maybe for Hillary Clinton, even in some cases, uh, or for Gary Johnson, but now they're okay with him. That is really, in my opinion, indefensible. So I, I you know, there, it's sort of the worst, it's, 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 you, he behaves as badly as anyone could have expected him to behave. The system is strained by his behavior and at risk because of his behavior. A second term is obviously going to be worse than a first term. If you look at the last year and a half compared to the first couple of years when there were still some people who could check him and the institutions were stronger, the Republican Party is totally co-opted. Again, it's something one could have reasonably hoped for in 2016 was, you know what, the Republicans in Congress will keep Trump in check. So all of that's disproved. And then they flip over and now they're going to be okay with Trump. It's really, uh, it's amazing. That that is the most interesting watching them do this, which is why I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. They, they always hate this when you, when you question the motives, but I mean, damn, as, as, as opposed to the people like the Elizabeth Newman's and others who at considerable risk to themselves. I mean, I, 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 I have to say, I do find, you know, we have been asking for years and years and years, when are people going to come forward? And you were talking about some of the senior people um, who, who frankly are at the end of their careers and really have nothing to lose. But some of these other people have a lot to lose. You know, Elizabeth no uh, Newman, Miles Taylor, others. Um, for them to come out now, uh, they're not looking to be celebrities. They're not going to get big book deals like John Bolton. I mean, these are people who really are putting themselves at risk, trying to sound the alarm. And you and I might have wished that they would have, you know, bailed, say, in 2017. But I do take them at their word that they were actually trying to swim against the tide and to prevent worse things from happening. But these these uh, these testimonials that uh, Republican voters against Trump have been putting out, I think, are incredibly moving. Yeah, I think the the, the regular voters, so to speak, are, are moving quite often, too. Actually, there's a you know, really people should look at them. I've tried to highlight some of the best on my on Twitter and you have too, and others, Sarah Longwell, Tim Miller. And, uh, but I do think Elizabeth and Olivia, who, I mean, Miles Taylor, so three of them came forth. Uh, Miles had left the administration about a year ago. Um, he also is young and, and he, you know, has probably burned a ton of bridges and he's been very uh, forthright about meetings he was in with President Trump. Uh, but Olivia and, and, and Elizabeth were more, Miles was a political appointee. So, um, Olivia and, and, and Elizabeth were career people. I think one of them had originally been a political appointee under Bush, but in both cases, kind of career intelligence community, uh, counterterrorism types. Uh, Olivia ended up uh, being the key Pence staff around the Coronavirus Task Force because she was the uh, Department of Homeland Security uh, detailee to Pence. Uh, Elizabeth, Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism and uh, Threats, I think it's called, at Threat Prevention at the DHS. So both doing their best. And and really, when you talk to them privately, but you see this in their public uh, interviews too, um, the, 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 you know, they went through, I mean, 
they went through a lot because they thought they could make things better and they did make things better. There's no question about it, I think. If you and I know from Olivia that she's still in touch with people who are on the coronavirus task force, people incidentally whose names you and I would know, and I, she might not even want me to say this, but I'll say it this way. People whose names you and I would know have talked to her since she left and expressed admiration for what she did in government and for her courage on speaking out now. Those people are, are still there because they think they can do some good and they probably are doing some good. But I mean, that really shows me how, how bad it is. I mean, that, that it's just that it got the degree to which Trump is just politicizing everything into it's the banana republic thing did you see this press so at the press conference yesterday announcing the 200 dollar check or, yeah. or whatever credit card free money debit yeah. card i guess to, to all of us uh, uh you're a little too young for this charlie but i guess i'll get mine if unless it's just a con or fraud which mm-hmm. it probably is but um the it's it was part of a broad you know here's our health plan it's all executive orders to prevent discrimination on pre-existing conditions and also drug importation. It's all totally phony. And yet Alex Azar, the secretary of HHS, uh, and Seema Verma, the uh, director of the Medicare program, uh, former aide to Pence, stood there and tried to pretend this was a real thing. Those people, I mean, what are they doing? Now, they couldn't get, I suspect, the actual career people to say anything about this. Um, But the degree to which he's willing to use the HHS secretary, the director of uh, the Medicare and Medicaid programs, I can't remember the official title, it's a long title, you know, to justify this kind of pure corruption of government for the purpose of electioneering and the degree to which they're willing to go along. They're not career, they're political appointees, but they're people of some standing. They are, they're not just, you know, 26 year olds who went to work for Trump when they were 21. I mean, they had careers and here they are just uh, debasing themselves, really. And so that, that well, part is really and, and, know, and knowing that it's phony, because you know they were in meetings where they went through and said, we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't do this. And Trump says, I want to do it anyway. So right. the, the $200 gift card I find fascinating because we learned about this last week that he, that he had been negotiating some big deal with big pharmacy. And they apparently were willing to go along with some of what he wanted to do to lower drug prices, except they came back to them and said, and we basically want you to create this massive slush fund so I can send out $200 vouchers to voters, to senior citizens right before the election. And big pharmacy said, oh, to hell with that. No, we're not doing that. And the deal fell apart. So Trump sitting there in the White House goes, I'm going to do it anyway. And somebody had to say, well, there's no money for it. Well, let's come up with some fiction. Let's let's pretend that we're going to get some savings from a non-existent program, something that doesn't exist. And we will claim that and folks will believe it because I'll say it. Now, maybe some folks will believe it because he says it. But you raise the question, what about the adults who know it's all bullshit and they're standing right next to him? Yeah. You know, and, and the pharma companies, the pharmaceutical companies, um, you know, I'm sure they went to their general counsels and they said, and think about it for a minute, yeah. you cannot give billions of dollars to the federal government to do something Trump wants to do. That's not how our system works. Otherwise, every, the auto companies, the oil companies, anyone could just give money for Trump to send out for some fake purpose, right? Here, your gas bills are kind of high and here's Exxon and and Mobile, uh, you know, giving money to Trump to lower them because they want Trump in there because he's, maybe I'm just making this up, but because he's better for them on environmental regulations. I mean, it, it is really opening the door wide to a kind of massive corruption, the takeover of government by private interests, uh, something that conservatives above all have been extremely alert to, have worried a lot that liberal sort of special interest groups have kind of 
you've gone to the edge of this kind of use of government for their own uh, partisan and political purposes. But no, I haven't heard. Maybe I missed it. You know, if I has there been? I don't read the Wall Street <laughs> Journal editorial page anymore. Have there been at National Review? Have there been denunciations of the two hundred dollar gift card? I mean, I ha- I haven't seen them from the right. So implicit in what you're saying, and I know you've made this case before, that it's it's one thing to maybe have made your peace with the Trump administration and you make the best of a bad situation, you make a deal, you engage in some transactional, um, you know, looking the other way, etc. Et, et that is one thing. But it's it's a very, very different thing to say. And yes, let's give him four more years. Right. Is yeah. to say, OK, we you know we're, we're playing the hand that was dealt us. We got to do all of this. But the decision that people have to make in the next six weeks is do you want four more years of this? You know, we know what the first term was like. Can we imagine what the second term was like? Because I think Donald Trump has been doing a Okay, quote unquote, pretty good job signaling what a second term might mean for the country. No, I think that's very, very important. I've thought this from the beginning, and I I do think that's one reason the polls are holding for Biden pretty much, you know, pretty steady. They've done a pretty good job of not relitigating every decision of the first three and a half years, a lot of which Mm -hmm. were uh, very deplorable in my view and and ill-advised and dangerous. But they happened and we're here and obviously on the coronavirus, we paid a huge price on, on some of the others. But I think they've done a pretty good job of raising the question you raise, which is, well, what would four more years of this look like? And, and, and look, Mr. and Mrs. Voter, you might have liked some of the things he did and maybe you voted for him in 2016 or maybe you didn't like some of the Democratic Party or media criticism of him in 2018, 2019. Maybe you didn't even think he should be impeached over Ukraine because it was one conversation with a foreign president and nothing really happened. But but this is not about did you approve of this or that. This is four more years of this. And look at the divisiveness. Look at where the country is. Look at the path we're on. And do you want to continue down that path? Yeah, I, I was reading uh, this morning before we started uh, Susan Glasser's piece in The New Yorker. She does the, the weekly column. Right. Wh- where I think she was kind of in the mood you were in and like what needs to be done. But can I just read two paragraphs and then we'll riff on it? Yeah. She said, throughout the the past four years, I felt it was important to maintain the ability to be shocked or surprised or at least deeply concerned when Trump violated this or that previously uncrossable line, when he shredded a law or a norm observed by previous presidents of both parties, even if it was utterly predictable and consistent with what we already knew of him, which we've been talking about. That was the exercise to try to understand how and in what ways Trump represents a sharp break with the American past or whether he is simply the latest example of a partisan leader who is willing to use whatever means, no matter how unscrupulous, to win. I started out, in other words, hoping and striving for clarity. This is 2020, however, and the election is a little more than five weeks away, and the list has grown too long. Trump has diverged so far from any of our past presidents in his conduct, in what he says and does, in exposing the public to consequences that are reckless and even deadly. We are fully exhausted and fully unnoticed. That was a great sentence. <laughs> yeah. I have depleted my reserves of shock and awe. I fear there is no more outrage left to summon, but I have not changed my view in one vital respect. We have to keep writing it down every last word of it. That's good stuff. Yeah. And she's a, <laughs> you know, she's a good journalist. And usually, you know, the New Yorker style is to be worldly and not to mm-hmm. his They've been hysterical. I mean, they have been alarmed about Trump and the anti-Trump, and Susan has been too. But uh, I hadn't read the piece yet. Actually, it just uh, came out last night, I think. But um, 
Yeah, no, that's well said and powerfully said. And again, it's a matter of getting voters now to really focus on what those next four years would be like. Well, and also it is that 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 struggling against normalizing it and getting numb. I mean, you know, we've been doing this for so long. You know, I when I read that, I thought, yeah, that's exactly where I'm at here. I just it's just like you're pounded, you're pounded, you're pounded, and you've struggled to remember it all and everything. Um, I do think that you know one of the things that 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 the anti anti Trumpers have to do is to is to see the world through blinders which is to focus on one thing they want to think about and ignore everything else because there has just been so much to treat this as just a regular election between regular you know democrats and republicans although this is why they of course they have to make the democratic party into this you know marxist revolutionary thing which is is a uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to watch them try to turn Joe Biden into that. So give me your sense of what you expect from the debates next week. You, you've been around long enough, these things. I, 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 will, I will repeat my skepticism that this will, in fact, actually make that much of a difference. But we all will have to pretend that it is like the biggest thing ever. Right. So. Right. What do you think? Well, what are you looking so, for? I mean, empirically, just to be on, you know, the, these debates yeah. have been going on since 1960. Then there was a hiatus and they started up again in 76. Um, they very rarely have moved the needle much. There's been point or two movement if someone did poorly. Yeah. Usually that, that is cr- fixed or either reverts back to where it was or is fixed by the one who does poorly doing better in the second debate. That would be the case with, with Obama against Romney in 2012. I remember in 1992 when I worked for Quayle, Bush had had a disastrous debate with Clinton, the town hall, where he it, it was unfair, but it didn't seem mm-hmm. like he understood the question from the mm-hmm. woman and so forth. And Quayle actually did pretty well against Gore. And I think the polling showed like a half point uptick the next day. And then it just was sort of meaningless. So people, yeah, A, we all overstate the importance of it. Most voters, I mean, this is actually a credit to the voters. They think they both, both candidates usually do okay in the sense that if you like them already, they say the same things yeah. they've been saying in speeches. And so why would you change your mind because of 90 minutes of the two of them on stage? And if one of them has a slightly better repartee, you know, comeback line, that that's not, it'd be foolish. You wouldn't select anyone else for any job because of that, right? So, I mean, in a way, I think it's to the voters' credit that they don't get overwhelmed by these debates. I'd say it's especially true when it's an incumbent because then you're judging the person's deeds in office, what he's done in office. You're not just it's not two different people promising something. The one debate that I think mattered, and maybe this is relevant, was 1980, where because the Reagan and Carter people were fighting about this, Carter didn't really want to debate Reagan. Um, there, there was only one debate between the two of them. Reagan had debated Anderson, the third party candidate earlier. It was eight days before the election. I remember this so vividly. And there, the race was very close. It seemed to be very close then anyway. A lot of skepticism about Reagan. And I remember watching it. I was the assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. I remember watching it with, with Susan at home in, in Philadelphia, in a little apartment in Philadelphia. And Reagan did did very well. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't super. I mean, he really did very mm-hmm. well, but mostly he just looked serious, sober. He knew a lot about foreign policy, about nuclear weapons. If you go back and look at these transcripts, it's amazing how substantive these debates were. He had a yes. couple of good lines against Carter. Carter looked silly and invoked his then, I think, 12-year-old daughter or something That like was that. a bad moment. And nuclear yeah. weapons. Amy. At the end of it, if you were a normal 
voter who wasn't happy about the way the country was going, who thought Carter hadn't been a very good president, though a decent person, obviously, but was worried about Reagan. They said he was kind of a wacko and, you know, uh, blow us up and and it's out of control, right winger. And you watch that debate. You thought, you know what? Reagan will be okay. And that was, I think, very important. And Reagan did open up, you know, an eight point lead over the next week, partly because of the debate, I think. So in this case, if you sort of think about that in the context of 2020, I think it's it's sort of Biden is Reagan in the sense that there are people who have their doubts about Biden. Trump has done his best to stir them up, obviously. It's just, is he up to it? Is he competent? Is he losing it? I think if Biden can do fine, if Biden can look like a normal, so to speak, moderately liberal politician who isn't doesn't look like he's a captive of the left and doesn't look like he's lost it and couldn't function in the White House, I think actually it could end up helping Biden. You know, Trump will, will do his usual stunts, but... Uh, so I think the pressure's on Biden. That's bad, I guess, if you're for Biden. The good news is I don't think Biden has to do spectacularly or have the six best zingers ever devised. He just needs to be competent and, and uh, you know, sound. I, 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 I agree with this analysis completely because I remember that 1980 campaign. And I, and I think this is why the analogy uh, holds, because I think that in late 1980, the country had already come to a verdict on Jimmy Carter. They just didn't want, you know, they, they didn't want to give him another four years, but they weren't sold on Ronald Reagan. They weren't completely comfortable with Ronald Reagan. And at the end of that process, they went, okay, you know what? We, we, yeah, we, we we want to get rid of Carter, and we we feel comfortable with uh, we, we feel comfortable with, with with Reagan. The other thing that I it's interesting, you know, watching social media, you know, the all the outrage about uh, Biden putting a lid on his days too early, yeah, it's right. a sign of his unfitness. You know, it's a sign to me that he's taking this very very seriously. I don't think that Donald Trump's going to prep for this debate in any meaningful way, and clearly. The Biden people understand how important this is. And so these quote unquote lids are a guy who's had a consistent lead, who understands that this is going to be the most important event and he's got to be prepared for it. So um, I think I think the underestimation of Joe Biden throughout this entire campaign um, has been one of the has been one of the themes, you know, the underestimation of him throughout the primary, throughout the general election. And, yeah, the pressures on him. But he seems to know it and he seems to be responding in the right way. So, of course, I could be disappointed. We could, you know, be shocked by his performance. He could come out. But um, I, I agree with your analysis that if he comes out, it, look, there's nothing that, that Donald Trump can do that people will go, that's new. I never seen that before. They're going to see the pure Trump. But they might see a more reassuring, more presidential, more coherent, maybe even an eloquent Joe Biden. So a lot of upside for him. I agree. From your lips, from your lips to God's ears. Uh, All right. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for your time today. Coming back on the Bulwark Podcast, we appreciate it. My pleasure, Charlie. And thank you for listening to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday, and we will do this all over again while we are taping this. There are just 39 days to go until Election Day.